Some of my remarks uh, today, I'm actually borrowing from a sermon by the Reverend Tim Keller. He is a Presbyterian minister in New York City, a very fine pastor, and I want to give him credit for some of the remarks that I'm making here today. We bow our heads and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. So the sermon text is on the back of your bulletin. And uh, just to give you the setting now of this passage from John chapter 8, we're in the Jerusalem temple, and this is one of the three great feasts of the Israelite year. Uh, It's the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. This is where uh, the Jews would build little huts for themselves to kind of reenact the wilderness wanderings. And uh, this actually takes place, uh, it would have been in the year uh, A.D. 32, October 17th or 18th, one of those two days, uh, six months before Holy Week then. That would have been April in A.D. 33. And this is uh, a debate is taking place between the Pharisees uh, and our Lord. And it's, it's getting kind of ugly. Uh, verse 48 the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are Samaritan and have a demon? So Roman number one in your outline, Jesus is being demonized. He's being demonized. And point A, uh, you know as well as I, when we can't win a debate with someone, we resort to personal attack. Okay, we resort to personal attack. We uh, resort to character assassination. If we can't best them in an argument, we attack their person. That's our nature. Uh, If we can't win fair and square, we hit below the belt. And that's what's happening here. Uh, Verse 49, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory, There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Point B, to glorify oneself is to seek the approval of men. When we draw attention to ourselves, what we really want, what we're really after, is the admiration of others. We want the veneration of others, the envy of others. We want to be the envy of our peers. And that's why we seek to elevate ourselves. And we're all susceptible to this. And it's exactly what Jesus refuses. To glorify oneself is to seek the approval of men. But point C, Jesus prefers rejection by his peers in order that he might gain the approval of God. Sometimes in order to have God's approval, we must risk the rejection of the world. As the Apostle John wrote, friendship with the world is hostility toward God. And it's sad to say, but the world is at odds with the Lord. And the world lives in us. It's not just out there, it's inside us as well. 
Our old nature is at odds with God. Point number one under part C, glory is always God's to give. It's never ours to achieve. Now we've, we've said two weeks ago in our gospel reading, Jesus will share his glory with us in heaven. Glory is his achievement. It's not our achievement. But he graciously shares his glory with us. It's pure grace. And point number two, Jesus waits for God to glorify him through his suffering, death, and resurrection. And throughout John's Gospel, that is the glorification of Jesus. It is his elevation upon the cross, and it is his resurrection from the dead. Jesus said this, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. See, this is his glorification through his suffering and his death. We always need to remember that because when we suffer for the sake of Christ, and we do in the world, and if you don't believe me, just go to Open Doors USA and you'll see all kinds of examples of persecution uh, around the globe. And this is why we, almost every Sunday, we pray for the persecuted church. But it's happening in our own country as well. People may not be put to death for faith in Jesus Christ, but they may not gain employment. They may lose their employment because of their faith in Christ. It's, it's the reality. Verse 52, verse 51, truly, truly I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. It's quite a statement. The Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Roman numeral two. This is, I think, a good example of the audacity of Jesus. The audacity of Jesus. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Only God can talk that way. Only God can. And then in verse 58, he makes this pinnacle statement. It's really kind of the Mount Everest of all the statements he makes in the Gospel of John. And he makes quite a few. Before Abraham was, I am. Now, Jesus doesn't say, before Abraham was, I was. Well, that would be quite a statement in itself. I pre-existed Abraham. I had a beginning, but I was before Abraham, greater than Abraham. But he doesn't say that. He says, before Abraham was, I am. You see, Jesus takes the divine name upon himself. Now, when you or I say, I am, there's always an object attached to that. Uh, we would say, I am this, or I am that. Uh, and Jesus speaks that way as well. Uh, he says, I am the light of the world, earlier in John 8. He says, I am the bread of life, in John 6. He says, I am the resurrection and the life, 
in John 11. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life in John 14. Any one of those titles is an amazing title to take to oneself, but Jesus goes even beyond that. He says of himself, I am, with no object following. So what does that mean? Well, his audience knew what it meant. That's why they picked up stones to kill him, because they knew, they thought, he was blaspheming, making himself out to be God. He's taking to himself the divine name. In Exodus chapter 3, God calls Moses to go to Pharaoh and to command him, let my people go. And Moses tries five times to get out of the call. And the second attempt to get out of the call goes like this. He says, if I go to the Israelites and if I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, they'll ask me, what is his name? And you've never given us that. And so what am I supposed to say to them? And God said to them, I am who I am. Say, I am has sent me to you. That is my name forever. That's his name forever. So what does it mean? I am implies there's no beginning to me, there's no end to me, and there's no because to me. You and I are who we are because of others, because of our parents. We are who we are because of our upbringing, because of others who have influenced us. But with God, there's no because. He simply is. When God says in Exodus 3, I am, he's saying, I don't depend on anyone or anything else for my existence. In fact, everyone and everything else depends upon me for their existence. It's at this point, Reverend Keller makes this statement. He says, what's truly amazing about this is that now we have a living, breathing human being making this claim. That's what's so outlandish. He takes this name upon himself. A person does that. And this is a problem with our contemporary understanding of religion in Western culture. Jesus is saying what no other founder of a major religion has ever said. In fact, and I'm quoting Reverend Keller here, Jesus is saying the exact opposite of what every other religious founder said. Because every other religious founder was a prophet or a sage who said, I've come to bring you the truth, or I've come to show you the way to God. I've come to show you how you should live. That's what all other religious founders say. But Jesus has the audacity to say, I am the way and the truth and the life. He's not saying, I've come to show you the way to God. Instead, he's saying, I am the uncreated, I am the beginningless God who has come to find you. So the founder of every other religion says, I've come to help you find God. Jesus says, I have come. I'm God in the flesh. Come to find you, because you can never find me. 
I have to find you in order to bring you to myself. That's the exact opposite of what every other religious founder says. Now, in our politically correct culture, it's fashionable to say, well, all religions are good uh, because they all meet people's needs in some way or another. They all provide some meaning to people's lives and so on. And Christianity is another one of those good religions. They're all good, and you have to decide which one works for you. But Jesus will not let you think that way. If Jesus is who he says he is, then the Christian religion has to be superior to every other because it's not founded by a prophet or a sage pointing you to God like others do, but it is founded by God himself who has come down to us to bring us to himself. This religion has to be superior if Jesus is right. But if Jesus is wrong, then he is a psychopath obsessed with his own power. And his religion is not one good option among others, but instead it is a series of lies that you should reject and you should despise. Politically correct people today like to say things like, well, I don't know if Jesus is son of God, but I really respect his teachings, which only proves you haven't read them. Because if you've read them, you would know about his outrageous claims. The teachings of Jesus are permeated with his self-understanding that he is God in the flesh. There's even one place where he says this to his opponents. He says, I keep sending you prophets down through the ages, and you kill them all. Now, you hear that. I send you prophets down through the ages. What man can make that claim? But Jesus speaks as only God can speak. This is not one more religion among many that you can choose from. Either it's true or it's diabolically false. Roman numeral three. What his claims mean for us? Point A, you cannot have a mild response to Jesus. You can't. You cannot have a casual response to this man. If you do, it proves you're not listening to him. To him. You're not paying attention. Point B, you must worship him or stone him. There's no middle ground. I cite a couple of passages there where Jesus says, whoever's not against me is for me. And he says, whoever's not for me is against me. He just simply means there's no middle ground, you see. Jesus makes the greatest claim that anyone can ever make. And it's the most outrageous claim anyone can ever make. He claims to be true God and true man. And both are necessary for our salvation. And our catechism here is absolutely spot on. In order to be our savior, Jesus had to be true man so that he could be born under the law of God and obligated to keep it. 
just as all of us are born under the moral law of God and obligated to keep it as well. But then he had to be true God, because only God himself can keep the law perfectly in our place as our substitute, which none of us can do. And this is why we say Jesus is our righteousness. All of our righteousness is in Christ. We believe in it. It is ours by faith. He had to be true man so that he could suffer and die in our place for our sins. But he had to be true God so that he could overcome death and the grave and complete our salvation. As St. Paul wrote in Romans 4, he was put to death for our sins and he was raised for our justification. We are just, we are right in the eyes of God, not by our work, not by our merit, but by the work and the merit of Jesus Christ. This is either the best news you'll ever hear or it's the greatest fraud ever committed. And there's no room in between. Jesus doesn't leave us that space. If you actually listen to what our Lord is saying, either you will stone him as the greatest blasphemer of all, or you will worship him because this man is the one true God without beginning and without end, who has come down to us, who has sought us and found us and drawn us to himself. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.